you're not already there, please turn to Genesis chapter 44. This chapter is part of a a very long narrative that shows Joseph and his brothers and his brothers going back and forth between Canaan and, and Egypt. And if you're wondering why this is part of this very long narrative, well, it's because Joseph is going to be reconciled with his brothers. That's the point. That's why the Lord saw fit in his wisdom to give us this, to explain to us how it happened. After 22 years of division, of hurt, Joseph is going to be reconciled with his brothers. And then up, up until Jacob, God only called one man. With Abraham, God called Abraham, even though Abraham had other brothers, it was Abraham who was called. Isaac had other brothers. Remember, Abraham got remarried and had other children. And then he sent those other children away from Isaac. Even though Isaac had other brothers, it was Isaac who was called. Jacob had a twin brother, but it was Jacob who was called. But now the Lord isn't just working in the ancestor of Jesus, who would have been Judah. And the Lord isn't just working in the one who had the birthright out of the 12 brothers, which would have been Joseph. The Lord is working in all 12, all the sons of, of Israel, all 12 sons of Israel. The Lord is working in them. So we would get, we would expect them to get past this problem of selling their brother. Selling your brother into slavery is not a good practice for the people of God. We can, we can, we can agree with that. So they need to get past this problem. So in chapter 42 is when this narrative that we're in began. In chapter 42, it began with the brothers going to Egypt for the first time to buy grain. And then they headed back to Canaan without Simeon. Chapter 43 is probably months later. They returned to Egypt to buy more grain, and then they ended up feasting with this Lord of the land who they did not know who he was at the time. Chapter 44 that we're dealing with today begins with the brothers leaving and heading back to Canaan early in the morning. It was our, it was barely dawn at this time, and they're he- heading back. Benjamin had met Joseph, and Benjamin is okay, and he's going back with them, and Simeon is also going back with them. This chapter has two parts to it. The first part is deals with Joseph's silver cup, and the second has to do with Judah's speech before Benjamin. So we're going to look at the first part first, here in chapter 44. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away. They went and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these things? Far be it from us 
that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whom, with whomever your, of our servants, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, now also let it be done, or let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched, he began with the oldest, and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey, and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So the brothers have again found themselves in a very difficult situation. They had just left Egypt where they were feasting and drinking with the Lord of the land there in his house. And they're returning now with Benjamin. He's, he is safe with them. And they're also returning with Simeon. And they think everything is going well until they're stopped by the steward of Joseph and accused of stealing the silver cup. But they didn't steal the silver cup. And they knew each other well enough to know that none of the brothers stole the cup. The cup was actually placed there by Joseph's steward. The problem that they made right here was that they made irrational statements to the steward, saying that the brother who stole the cup would die and that the rest of them would become slaves. When we know that we are right about something, instead of trying to plead our case and getting ourselves into more trouble with our words, it's best just to let it be and, and let the facts vindicate us. But they didn't do that. They weren't cautious with their words. The steward searched them, and we read there in verse 12, He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then verse 13 says, Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Notice how the steward says there in verse 10. In verse 10 he said that the one who had the cup will be his slave, and that the rest would be blameless. Well, this is another test. It's another test for them if they were the same as they were 22 years before this when they left Joseph behind and went to their father without Joseph. Well, this time surely they would have left Benjamin behind and returned to their father without Benjamin. We know that the scriptures tell us that Jacob showed Benjamin the same favoritism that he showed Joseph before. And if they were jealous of Benjamin like they were jealous of Joseph... And if they had no feelings for Benjamin the way that they had no feelings for Joseph before, and if they had no feelings for their father the way that they had no feelings for their father before this, they would have agreed with the steward. They were, they were said to be blameless and they would have left Benjamin behind and went back on to Canaan. 
They could have just told their father that their brother Benjamin was accused of stealing the cup and the cup was found in his sack. So there was nothing that they could do. But they are different now. They're not the same that they were 22 years before. We know that they're different because of what we read in verse 13. It says, Then they tore their clothes and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So there's no temptation to point fingers. They're not blaming Benjamin. They're not making excuses for anything. Tearing the clothes, showing grief and remorse at what has happened when they realize that they were in trouble and that this was not going good for them. What they did was they loaded their donkeys and returned to the city together. These are not the same men that they were when they were much younger. I do want us to notice Joseph Stewart right here. Joseph Stewart. We're not given his name. In verse 1, he's called the steward of Joseph's house. And we do see how he carried out his responsibilities. He carried them out with faithfulness and with exactness. In verse 2, he was commanded to put Joseph's silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. And we can think if he didn't do that, or if he mistakenly put the cup in the wrong person's sack, well, the entire plan would have gone wrong for Joseph. Also, the steward was told, the steward told the brothers exactly what Joseph told him to tell them. If you look at verse, verse 6, it says he spoke to them the same words. There in verse 10, when he told them, He with whom it is found shall be my slave and you shall be blameless. Well, that's exactly what Joseph tells them in verse 17. Joseph said, The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Verses 10 and verse 17 say the same thing from these two different men because the steward was saying exactly what his master told him to say. He carried out his responsibilities with exactness. He carried them out faithfully. And we can think of a steward in a general way as someone under the authority of another who is given responsibility from that authority. And he's expected to carry out those responsibilities. And we can look at our own stewardship to the Lord. In every area of our lives, in, in, in the house, in the home life, children in obedience to their parents, in the marriage, wives to their husbands, husbands to the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to the civil government, we submit to our authorities. When it comes to the church, we submit to our elders. When it comes to to Students to a teacher, submission to the teacher. In our jobs, we submit to our, to our supervisors, to our, man, to our managers, and we're to carry out this stewardship and in obedience and carry out the responsibilities that are expected of us, and we're to carry them out faithfully and with precision. Also, this steward, by the way, is, is the same steward that we read about in the previous chapter, who talked to the brothers in Genesis chapter 43, verse 23. He told the brothers, Peace be with you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Then he says, I had your money. So this steward had already heard about the, the God of these brothers. And he knew that their God wasn't the same God that the Egyptians worshipped. The gods, plural gods, that the Egyptians worshipped. I'm sure this was because of the influence that Joseph had over this steward. 
the godly influence that he had over him. So these brothers returned to Joseph's house and the scriptures say that they fell before him on the ground. These brothers are getting very used to bowing to their brother Joseph. Then we read in verse 15, Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Divination was a kind of fortune telling that was practiced in Egypt. It was where they used the cups and they believed that spirits would give signs to them in the wine. One commentator said that the Egyptian leaders were also the priests. So it was expected of Egyptian leaders to also practice divination and and be able to have this kind of priestly magic. And that would explain why Joseph told his brothers, did you not know that such a man as I can practice divination? Someone to his leadership level would be expected to have done something like this. Now, I don't believe that Joseph actually practiced divination. I don't believe he actually practiced this. I, I just see, see this as this part of this entire time. He's pretending to be this Egyptian Lord, which he is, but he's pretending not to be their brother Joseph. So he's playing a part. Also, God's word is opposed to the practice of divination. It says in Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. And then the Lord gives us a list. And in that list is sorcery, interpreting omens, diviners. It also says in Leviticus 19, verse 26, you shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination. Now, we know, of course, Joseph hadn't received the law yet. He didn't have these verses before him to read like like we do. But in the same way that he knew that he wasn't supposed to touch Potiphar's wife, he knew that he wasn't supposed to practice divination either. He would have resisted this practice. And Joseph made it clear to everyone that it was the Lord who interpreted the dreams, not some Egyptian practice of divination, not demonic spirits. But since he pretended that the cup was was what he drank out of and what he practiced divination with, Stealing this cup from him would have been a a huge insult to him. So the brothers, again, are very afraid of this situation. They're in his hands. They're at his mercy. They're in trouble. Well, let's continue reading. Now we're going to look at Judah's speech. I'm going to start back on verse 16 and read the rest of the chapter. It says, Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes upon him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for 
if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not, or you shall see my face no more. Verse 24. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. He had other wives, three women, three others. And he had other sons, the ones who are here. Verse 28, and the one went from me, the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. Judah really believes this, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Notice how Judah doesn't blame the judge. Judah doesn't blame Joseph here. Then verse 32 says, For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers, for how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? That's perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. So we see Judah taking the lead here. There are people who want leadership positions because they want the honor and the notoriety that they see that it comes with and they, they expect that and they want that. But Jesus said, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And Judah right here takes the lead. Before this, all we saw was Judah as the man who sold Joseph into slavery. Remember, he was the one who suggested to the brothers that they sell him. And then we saw Judah with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But now we see Judah interceding on behalf of Benjamin. And it's because of what Judah does here that actually brings reconciliation. It's because of this that Joseph is reconciled with his brothers. So there are two important themes that I want you to look at here in Judah's speech. The first one is that Judah showed, shows true repentance. If you want to know what true repentance looks like, there, it's going to include these three aspects. First, repentance is going to include conviction. In Genesis 42 and verse 41, it says, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for he saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. These brothers were convicted. These brothers were convicted that this trial that they were going to at this time in Egypt was directly, was a direct result of what they had done 22 years before this when they sold their brother into slavery. They were convicted by this as, as a fact and there was nothing that could make them think otherwise. They linked these two things together. 
They relate, related them together. They understood this as being something from God, not chance, not something that was, that was just a completely different situation. They didn't see this as any kind of, any kind of karma or, or, or just, just a coincidence. But they saw these two events as being God's act because of what they had done to their brother. In Genesis chapter 42 and verse 28, these brothers said to one another, what is this that God has done to us? All of this was what God had done. So the first aspect of true repentance is going to be conviction. Second is going to be confession. We see Judah's confession here in verse 16. In verse 16, Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. There was nothing that Judah could say. The Scottish preacher in the late 1700s named George Lawson noted that Judah and his brothers were not at liberty to plead their innocence. The cup was in Benjamin's sack. How could Judah justify or excuse Benjamin without seeming to incriminate the governor whose favor it was so necessary to court? In justifying their brother, they would have to accuse the judge who had them in his power. So they're at his mercy. What could they do? So Judah, speaking in the place of all of his brothers, he acknowledged and confessed their guilt. He mentioned the the cup that was in Benjamin's sack. But he was thinking about the guilt that they had before God of selling their brother. And not just that, but also putting their father through so many years of great sorrow and the loss of his son, thinking that his son had perished. Judah had confessed their sin, saying, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also, with whom the cup was found. But then Joseph responded there in verse 17, saying, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. This is another test. Another test. Again, they they see that they can just leave. They can leave Benjamin behind and, and they can just go up in peace to their father. Of course, you know, there would be no peace for their father if they left. But it's an, another test, but they weren't going to leave Benjamin behind anymore. And they weren't going to put their father through sorrow anymore. The third aspect of true repentance is going to be conversion. You see these three aspects in the person, conviction, then confession, and conversion. This is what true repentance looks like. Conversion is an evident and visible change in the person. John the Baptist preached in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 26 and verse 20 that he preached, repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. So those who repent will have fruits and works following their repentance in the same way that the tail follows the dog. The, the fruits and the works are not going to be something that comes years after the repentance. It, it will come after it, but it will, it will be there with it. It will be visible. It will be evident. And sometimes it will be seen in great ways. Other times it will be seen in small ways. But rest assured, those who are closest to the person will be able to see the repentance. There will be 
something different that is seen. And when it comes to repentance, repentance is something that's too often avoided in Christian churches today. And it has been this way. And I'm saying Christian churches. We don't expect it, we don't expect to see biblical repentance in churches that are not biblical. But in Christian churches, churches that claim to be evangelical churches that want to emphasize grace, they avoid this subject of repentance. And it could be because they think that if you teach on repentance, somehow you're teaching works or you're teaching works leading to salvation. So they avoid repentance altogether, which is wrong. The problem is obvious when these churches are on the topic of evangelism. And they, and, and they give these formulas, which formulas are not bad as long as they are biblical, but they give these formulas like the ABCs of salvation or the Romans road to salvation, formulas that emphasize repent or emphasize faith and belief, but they don't, they don't talk about repentance. They avoid the subject of repentance. They agree, yeah, that's something that should happen, but they leave that as something that the person should figure out on their own as they are walking with the Lord. But when Jesus began to preach, the first thing that he said was repent and believe the gospel. These two things go together. Repentance and belief go together. Repentance must be among the first fruits of the Christian. And as long as a Christian it continues in, in the flesh... As long as he sins, there will still be repentance there. So we begin our Christian walks believing and repenting, and we continue. As we walk with the Lord, we continue believing in Him, actively exercising our faith, and actively repenting. These two go together. So Judah showed repentance. We see the conversion of Judah in verses 33 and 34. It says there, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Judah was willing to spend the remaining years of his life away from his children, away from his brother, away from his father, without any freedom, as a lifelong slave in this foreign nation in, in Egypt, rather than what? Rather than seeing the evil that would come upon his father when his father realizes that Benjamin is not there. Judah was, was willing, he had already was okay with it in his mind that his father loved Benjamin more than himself. This is not the same Judah that, that we saw before. He was okay with his father's sin. He accepted it. But he had already settled in his mind, I am not going to see my father's face. I'm not going to put my father through the same torment that I put him through in, in the previous 22 years. This is conversion. This is genuine repentance we're seeing in Judah. And in, we'd expect some of the brothers also, if not all of them. The other thing that Judah showed in this speech is substitutionary atonement. The full name of the doctrine is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal having to do with a penalty needing to be paid for a crime that was committed. 
and then atonement basically means reconciliation. So he is showing substitutionary atonement right here. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer two goats as a sin offering. One goat was killed and its blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. The high priest would then, with the second goat, he would lay both of his hands upon the head of the living goat. And he would confess all of the sins of the children of Israel and send that living goat away into the wilderness. And here the the scapegoat took the sins of the people away. All of their sins are removed from their account, along with all of the guilt that they had because of their sins, completely gone. This, by the way, right here is, is a picture of this doctrine of substitutionary atonement of what Jesus Christ does for his people. But this wasn't the first picture of substitutionary atonement in Genesis. What was the first picture that we get? What was the first one? What happened before this in Genesis? And we'll see after that with Abraham and Isaac. Yeah, okay, maybe this is a third then. <laughs> but but I'm I'm thinking about Abraham and, and, and Isaac. Yeah. When when the ram was given in the place of Isaac, that that would have been what I'm thinking about in this context as the first picture. And as we look at the Day of Atonement, when these two goats are offered, the first one is is sacrificed. It's killed. Its blood is shed. We see in the New Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The ram was offered for Isaac. The ram's blood was shed in his place. And here is this second account where Judah is wanting to stay on behalf of Benjamin. Yes, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Yes, according to the way it looks, Benjamin is guilty. Benjamin's going to stay in prison forever. The rest are going to go free. And Judah tells this unknown Lord of the land, keep me instead. Take me. Let me take his place. To where Benjamin could go free, even though he's guilty, he would be completely forgiven of this guilt and allowed to go to his father in Canaan. And here we, we see these These two pictures of these two goats. The first one, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Even in that verse, we have the first goat, its blood being shed. But then the second goat, taking away the sins of the people, the word remission, the root of that word is a sending away remission, as we think of missionaries being sent away. You think of missiles being sent. It's that same root word. And it has to do with our sins being taken away or or, or the guilt of our sins being sent away from us. It says in the scriptures again, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We are no longer guilty for our sins because the guilt of them is being removed from us. And this is what Judah is showing here. This doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Judah didn't argue for Benjamin's innocence. 
he agreed with his guilt because justice demands payment. He agreed with his guilt, but he asked if he could suffer in Benjamin's place so that Benjamin could go free. It says about Jesus Christ, before he even came, in Isaiah chapter 53, the the prophet Isaiah said there about our Lord coming to take our sin, to die in our place. I'm going to read some from that chapter, some, some passages, some accounts from that chapter, and we see this. We see this substitutionary atonement right here. About Jesus, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. For the transgressions of my people He was stricken. By His knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. For He shall bear their iniquities and He bore the sin of many. So Jesus took our wounds upon Himself. He took our transgressions. He took our bruisings. He took our chastisement. He took the stripes that we deserved. He took our sin. And in place of that, He gives us peace. He gives us healing. He gives us justification in that place. So here Judah interceded on behalf of Benjamin and he showed himself to be a type of Christ. It's no longer just Joseph who is a type of Christ. And what Judah does here actually ends Joseph's tests. We don't know if in, in Joseph, Joseph's mind he was going to continue on with these tests. But what he does here at the end of this chapter ends these tests. And now there is reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. But we won't, we won't see that until the next chapter when Joseph is just is just overwhelmed by seeing that they passed this test and seeing what Judah was willing to do for his father and taking the place of his brother. Well, let's pray.